Welcome to Addiction in Simple Terms. My name is Dr. Julian Keats. I'm a specialist with over 10 years' experience assessing and treating drug and alcohol-related problems. And in this podcast, I explain some of the important ideas in addiction to help you make sense of your experiences and hopefully make some changes for the better in your life. This is episode 12. In episode 10, I spoke about stress, and in episode 11, I spoke about the mechanisms underlying fear, anxiety, and avoidance. I strongly recommend you listen to those episodes before this one, because they'll give you some important background that will help you understand the topics we discussed today. If you've listened to those episodes previously, but it wasn't for some time, you may want to go back and re-listen to refresh yourself. Today, we'll be talking about anxiety disorders. We'll start with a discussion about what's normal and what might be considered outside of normal experience. We'll examine what it means to have some symptoms of anxiety, and we'll look at when someone's symptoms and experiences might be formally diagnosed as an anxiety disorder. Then we'll go on to talk a little bit more specifically about each of the main anxiety disorders. But first, an important disclaimer. The information presented here is for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice. I am a medical doctor, and my aim is to help you understand anxiety disorders better and make some sense of the terms you hear. But you shouldn't be using what you learn here to try and diagnose yourself or others. If you or someone you care for is experiencing serious problems, you should seek out a formal assessment with a family doctor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or some other trained mental health professional who can make a diagnosis and provide tailored advice about treatment. Okay, let's make a start. We'll begin by laying down this working definition. Anxiety is a feeling of unease and apprehension in response to an anticipated future threat or danger. It's very similar to fear in many ways, in that it activates our threat detection systems, it can trigger physical arousal, and it motivates us to defensive or evasive avoidance behaviours. But whereas fear is an almost instinctual response to a definite and present threat in the here and now, Anxiety is a slightly less urgent and less intense response to the anticipation of a threat that may or may not ever materialise. Anxiety spans all three of the important aspects of our conscious experience. It affects how we think, sometimes called our cognitions, how we feel, both our emotions and our bodily sensations, and how we act, or our behaviours. Thoughts become focused on the potential danger and the risk of harm or negative consequences. We become nervous or on edge. We may notice increased muscle tension, a racing heart, and an increased breathing rate, all signs of the body's arousal in response to elevated adrenaline levels. And we may employ behaviours aimed at preparing for, defending against, or avoiding the anticipated threat. Keep these core concepts in mind while we take a look at some fundamental questions. First, what's normal and what do we mean when we say abnormal? Some anxiety is quite normal. We all experience anxiety as part of everyday life and it serves an important function helping us to anticipate challenges, alerting us to proceed with caution and usually motivating us to respond with appropriate preparation and action. Everyone's had some anxiety before an exam, before giving a speech in front of others or in the lead up to playing in the season final or championship game for a sporting team. If you've ever had to go to court and testify in front of a judge or jury as the defendant or just as a witness, you've felt anxiety. 
But for some people at some times and in some situations, the feeling of anxiety, its associated thoughts and the actions or responses that occur go beyond what would be considered normal by most people in society. There may be an increased sensitivity to anxiety, a heightened or more intense response to anxiety, or difficulty shutting off the anxiety once it's provoked. When the anxiety response is particularly severe and persistent, and clearly out of proportion to the true nature of the threat, then we'd say anxiety is excessive and abnormal. It becomes unhelpful, and the anxiety is the very thing itself that becomes the problem. It's a constant and repeated false alarm that reduces functionality and serves to amplify and extend the feeling of distress. It's important to note that in the moment, the person experiencing that anxiety may not themselves feel the response is excessive, because typically along with their heightened level of anxiety, they will have overestimated the danger in a situation, but an outside observer will be able to see it. Number two, what does it mean to have some anxiety symptoms versus what does it mean to have an anxiety disorder? We've covered normal anxiety and anxiety that's beyond normal. You're probably wondering at what point do we say someone has an anxiety disorder? Generally that comes down to the level of distress that the anxiety is causing and how disruptive it is to a person's life and their ability to go about their normal activities or function normally. When someone's highly distressed or when their usual functioning is significantly impacted then we've probably shifted into the area of an anxiety disorder. But it is a case of shades of grey. There is no clear line but rather a spectrum that ranges from normal anxiety at one end through excessive or abnormal levels of anxiety somewhere in the middle to the anxiety disorders at the more extreme end. Part of the problem may be biological. Some people have an inborn predisposition to be more sensitive or to react more strongly with anxiety because of a genetic factor that's passed down from their parents and grandparents and so on. Part of the problem comes from our early experiences and environment, if we've learned unhelpful patterns of reacting or responding. And part of the problem can lie in high levels of current life stress that turn up the volume in a person's sympathetic nervous system, leading to high levels of circulating adrenaline and an increased likelihood of anxiety becoming unmanageable when provoked. I should probably clarify here that when we use the term anxiety disorder, what we're referring to is actually several different disorders that fall under one heading. They all have anxiety as the core underlying issue, but they differ from one another in the types of situations that trigger them, the associated thoughts or cognitions, and the pattern of avoidance or coping behaviours. The classification system used to determine which exact label or diagnosis we use comes from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, now in its fifth edition. This is commonly referred to as the DSM-5. It's not the only classification, and there are various criticisms of it, but it's the most widely used and accepted classification system with the largest body of research evidence supporting its use. The main subtypes of anxiety disorders we're going to talk about in this episode are the phobias, social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and generalised anxiety disorder. We're also going to touch on obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD, and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. OCD and PTSD used to be in the anxiety disorders section of the DSM, although in the latest edition, the DSM-5, they each have their own chapters. But they still have enough similarities to be worth a mention in our discussion about anxiety disorders. Third question, 
how sure can you be that a particular diagnosis is correct? The answer here is somewhere between not real sure and it depends. There's a fair bit of overlap between the different diagnoses and the assessment of symptoms depends both on your description of symptoms and some interpretation and judgment by your doctor. That means it's actually quite hard to be 100% certain that one exact diagnosis is the absolutely correct diagnosis. Your symptoms may vary over time or in different situations on different days. Your ability to describe and explain your symptoms to your doctor or what your doctor observes in one or a few assessments in a limited range of sessions may influence how they classify things. Other factors such as changing life circumstances, stress, alcohol or drug use and other medical conditions are also very important and can cloud the picture. And different doctors may interpret things slightly differently or make slightly different judgment calls. So seeing a skilled and experienced doctor over several visits and providing as much accurate information as possible can help improve the accuracy of diagnoses. And of course, it's not uncommon for someone to have more than one anxiety disorder existing at the same time. Fortunately, the initial treatment approaches for most anxiety disorders, the medications, the psychological therapies, the lifestyle changes, are all fairly similar, just like the underlying core problem of anxiety is similar. So some uncertainty about the exact diagnosis doesn't have to get in the way of making a meaningful start into effective treatment. And question four, how much does alcohol and drug use get in the way of accurate diagnosis of anxiety disorders? Well, the answer here is that when there's any significant alcohol or drug use in the picture, it's much harder to make a firm diagnosis of an anxiety disorder. This is partly because intoxication with some drugs and withdrawal from most drugs can produce symptoms that mimic those seen in anxiety disorders. So for this reason, if your doctor is aware of significant alcohol and drug use, they should probably reserve any judgment about the nature of your symptoms and not lock in the diagnosis of an anxiety disorder. If your doctor is not aware of your alcohol and drug use, then they may mistakenly attribute your symptoms to anxiety disorder. When that occurs, when you're doctor is trying to treat an anxiety disorder but alcohol and drug use is continuing unaddressed, it's very likely that the symptoms won't respond very well to the treatment attempted. Now in some cases there will be an underlying anxiety disorder that's part of what drives someone to overuse alcohol or drugs in a desperate attempt at so-called self-medication to find relief from symptoms. But the fact remains that trying to treat an anxiety disorder in the face of ongoing uncontrolled alcohol and drug use is unlikely to find much success. So if it's the case that there's an anxiety disorder and a substance use disorder, you'll need a skilled practitioner to help you address both substance use and anxiety at the same time for best results. Now let's look in a little more depth at each of the main anxiety disorders. We'll start with the phobias. There are a number of fears that all humans have that seem to be inbuilt to some degree or innate. Most people in all different cultures across the world have some fear of snakes, spiders or heights for example. These innate fears have probably come about through the evolution of humans because they're protective to some extent. Those humans that were fearful of snakes, spiders or heights probably had a better chance of surviving and having many offspring, whereas those individuals who were not naturally fearful of those potential dangers were more likely to come to grief and not survive, and so their genes weren't passed on. But research also tells us that fear can be a learned response, 
often arising from unpleasant experiences in our early childhood that linger in our memories and haunt our future encounters with those objects or situations. When the degree of fear and anxiety related to a specific object, such as spiders, or situation, such as heights, is clearly out of proportion, is consistently triggered immediately whenever the thing is encountered, and causes significant distress, disability or avoidance, we call this a phobia. In the DSM-5, phobias are classified based on the nature of the trigger, or the thing that's feared. There are animal phobias, where the trigger is commonly snakes, spiders or dogs. There are phobias related to the natural environment, the most common being heights or water, but sometimes also weather events such as thunderstorms. Then there are the situational phobias. A couple of examples would be flying and elevators. There's a subtype of phobia related to hypodermic needles, injections or the sight of blood. And there's also a grab bag of other phobic triggers that don't fit anywhere else, including phobias related to costumed characters such as clowns. People with a phobia have more than the normal amount of fear and their lives can be quite disrupted by the avoidance of the trigger. A person with a phobia of spiders or snakes may not be able to walk in the park or even go into their backyard or garden shed. A person with a phobia of dogs may struggle to walk down the street past a barking dog or visit friends who have dogs as pets. A person with a phobia of heights may not be able to live in a two-storey house, drive over a tall bridge or take that job in a high-rise building. A person with a phobia of flying may have never flown on an aeroplane or gone on an overseas holiday or they may miss important work conferences or family funerals as a result. And a person with a phobia around needles and injections may avoid getting important vaccinations or injected medications from their doctor as a result. The next main disorder to consider is social anxiety disorder. Social anxiety disorder is the marked fear and avoidance of social situations where the person thinks they might be scrutinised by others. They might be the centre of attention or where they could do or say something to embarrass themselves or where others might notice their anxiety and judge them negatively and ridicule them or reject them. It's more than just simple shyness. It's an intense dread of social interaction that's highly distressing and disabling for the sufferer because of the associated avoidance that results. Many people might have a limited experience of this kind of dread related to giving a speech or performance in public, such as at an awards evening, a wedding or a concert. But for people with full-blown social anxiety disorder, that kind of dread extends beyond just those performance situations and into all their everyday social interactions. These people blush at the drop of a hat, they might speak softly or avoid eye contact, they disclose very little about themselves in conversation and they avoid discussing sensitive topics. They don't go to parties, they might live at home with their parents longer and marry later, and they choose occupations that don't require high levels of social interaction. Only about half of people with social anxiety disorder ever seek treatment, and it's often not until they've suffered with the disorder for 15 to 20 years. Next is panic attacks and panic disorder. Panic attacks are sudden surges of intense fear and discomfort that come on quickly, build to a crescendo over a matter of 5 to 10 minutes, and typically settle or resolve completely within 15 to 20 minutes. They may occur predictably in response to a recognised fear, or seem to come out of nowhere with no obvious trigger. The person experiences a rapid progression of symptoms that include several of the following. 
palpitations, sweating, trembling, shaking, shortness of breath, chest pain, nausea, dizziness, chills and hot flushes, sometimes numbness and tingling, and sometimes feelings of depersonalization, being detached from oneself, or derealization, being detached from one's surroundings or reality. The person often fears losing control or going crazy, and they may think they're having a heart attack or are going to die. It's not uncommon for someone to present to the emergency department following a first panic attack. Panic attacks are actually quite a common thing, and many people, maybe even most people, will experience at least one in their life. Most of the time, they don't recur, and having an isolated panic attack does not mean a person has panic disorder. But when unexpected panic attacks become a recurring problem, and there's ongoing concern and worry about further panic attacks, or significant avoidance of situations where the person fears a panic attack might occur, then the diagnosis of panic disorder might be appropriate. Some people with panic disorder are so fearful of further panic attacks that they go to great lengths to avoid situations in which they think they might recur. When a person avoids going out to public places where there are crowds of people and uncontrolled situations, we call that agoraphobia, from the Greek word agora, which is the open markets in an ancient Greek village or town. When agoraphobia is severe, the person may not just avoid markets, shopping centres and crowds, such as on public transport, they may avoid leaving the house at all, and not leave the safety of their home for days, weeks, or even months at a time. So when you hear the diagnosis of panic disorder, you often also hear the attached descriptor, with or without agoraphobia. Next is generalised anxiety disorder. Generalised anxiety disorder, as the name implies, is a more widespread and generalised state of anxiety that's present on more days than not over an extended period of at least six months at a time. Often, the person will actually report that they've felt anxious or nervous their whole life. The anxiety is not focused on or limited to particular objects or situations like with a phobia or social anxiety disorder, and it's not as sudden or intense as a panic attack or panic disorder but rather these people tend to worry excessively over numerous everyday things in various domains of their life, including social relationships, health and well-being, finances, household chores, safety and security, and school or work performance. The exact content of their worries also tends to shift around and vary over time. In generalised anxiety disorder, the worries are pronounced and distressing, they're excessive, and they interfere with psychosocial functioning. This is different to the normal run-of-the-mill worries that people without the disorder experience, where the worrying is perceived as more manageable and can be put off when more pressing matters arise. Often the person with generalised anxiety disorder will have a tendency to catastrophize. They'll imagine the worst possible outcome in every situation, and they'll overestimate the likelihood of the worst-case scenario coming to pass. This only serves to amplify and extend their worry and anxiety, heightening their state of arousal and distress, and setting up a feedback loop of even more worry and anxiety. They may seek constant or repetitive reassurance about things where the outcome is uncertain, but any reassurance offered is to no avail, as they continue to worry excessively, or simply move on to their next worry without missing a beat. And they may experience physical symptoms or somatic complaints due to their prolonged state of anxious over-arousal. Things like restlessness, fatigue, 
Muscle tension and sleep disturbance can prompt the person to present repeatedly to their doctor, worried that there's some serious, overlooked medical condition as the cause. Or they may be troubled by sweating, nausea or diarrhoea, and receive stress-related diagnoses such as irritable bowel syndrome and tension headaches. Now that we have a bit of an idea about the different diagnoses that fall under the heading of anxiety disorders, I just want to give you a brief overview of the numbers, or the epidemiology. Anxiety disorders as a group are the most common class of mental disorders in Australia, and I think it would be safe to say in other similar developed countries. According to guidelines produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, In any 12-month period, about 1 in 7 people, or 14% of the population, suffers from some sort of anxiety disorder. They usually start early in life, from the teens to the 20s and 30s, and are much less likely to have their first onset after the age of 40. They're more common in women than men, and also more common in people who are separated, divorced or widowed, less educated or unemployed. Looking at the specific conditions... Social anxiety disorder affects around 5% of the population. Panic disorder affects 2-3% of the population. And generalised anxiety disorder is the same, affecting 2-3% in any 12-month period. I don't have Australian numbers, but World Health Organisation data suggests that across a range of countries, the likelihood of experiencing a specific phobia in any 12-month period is somewhere in the neighbourhood of 5-10%. to In over half of those with a phobia, other anxiety disorders are diagnosed later on, so the presence of a phobia might be a useful indicator of patients who warrant careful ongoing attention and early intervention. And that brings us to Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, or OCD, and Post Traumatic Stress Disorder, or PTSD. As I've mentioned, each of these are dealt with in their own separate chapter of the latest classification system, the DSM-5, and so strictly speaking are not anxiety disorders by definition. But anxiety and anxiety symptoms do play a role in the experience and expression of both these diagnoses, so I thought I'd provide you with a short summary of them just to help you understand the various diagnostic labels you may have heard of. First, let's consider obsessive compulsive disorder. This affects about 2% of the Australian population in any 12-month period. Now, we've all met people who have a tendency to perfection in that they're very neat and like everything to be orderly and in its place. That's not true OCD. Obsessive-compulsive disorder is characterised by recurrent or intrusive thoughts that interrupt a person's thinking or activities many times through the day and are hard to suppress. These are the obsessions. They feel involuntary, they're uninvited and unwanted, and they're distressing and anxiety-provoking. Typically, the person will see these intrusive thoughts as senseless or unreasonable, and sometimes shameful or embarrassing, but they feel helpless to stop them or control them. And the obsessions are frequently, though not always, accompanied by compulsions, repetitive behaviours, rituals or mental exercises that the person feels driven to do in response, and that they're powerless to resist or where resisting causes rising distress and feelings of anxiety. When the compulsion is a physical behaviour, like locking a door, it's easily observable by others. But sometimes the compulsion is a mental act, such as counting or repeating a certain phrase, that the sufferer does in silence, unbeknownst to those around them. 
The compulsions are often understandable as an attempt to prevent some dreaded event or outcome, but an outside observer will be able to see that in reality the feared outcome is highly unlikely. Nonetheless, the person still feels driven to perform the compulsion no matter how pointless or ineffectual the behaviour or ritual really is. When they do perform the compulsion, they experience a very brief period of relief, but in no time at all their anxiety returns and the intrusive thoughts or obsessions recur. And the compulsive behaviours and rituals can be very demanding on the person's time, so the person with OCD can be dogged by intrusive obsessions and time-consuming compulsions that when they're severe can occupy much of their day, interrupting their usual activities and slowing them down to a crawl. There are a few common themes with regard to the obsessions and the associated compulsions or rituals. There are obsessions about causing or failing to prevent harm and checking rituals. Obsessions about things being symmetrical with counting and ordering rituals. Obsessions about germs and contamination with washing and cleaning rituals. And obsessions that relate to unacceptable thoughts about sex, violence or religion. A separate diagnosis of hoarding disorder is made, rather than OCD, when the symptoms relate to the compulsion to collect and retain things or hoard things because of an obsessive need to keep them or difficulty discarding them. And there are many other things that can form the basis of an obsessional compulsion, so OCD can take on many different appearances, and in some cases it's many years before the symptoms are recognised and diagnosed properly as OCD. Finally, we come to post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD affects 4 to 5% of the Australian population in any 12-month period. It starts with exposure to a potentially traumatic event, which includes any threat, actual or perceived, to the life or physical safety of the individual, their loved ones or those around them. Some typical examples here include war and combat, torture, sexual assault, physical assault, natural disasters, accidents, both motor vehicle and workplace injuries, and terrorism. The exposure to these events may be on a single occasion or one-off, or there may be repeated exposures to trauma. And in PTSD, there's an injury to one's psyche in that there's damage to the person's emotional or psychological health and well-being. It's important to note that not all people who experience trauma sustain a psychological or emotional injury and go on to develop PTSD. In fact, most don't. There are risk factors that increase the chance of developing PTSD. They include the severity and intensity of the traumatic event, especially interpersonal and intentional traumas, and a history of prior traumatisation. Gender plays a role, with women more likely to experience PTSD than men. Having a prior mood or anxiety disorder or a family history of mood or anxiety disorders also increases the chance of PTSD. And having a lower educational level is also associated with the onset of PTSD, although we don't yet fully understand the reason why. So we have the exposure to trauma as the initiating event. Now a degree of psychological distress after a traumatic event is common, with people experiencing emotional upset, increased anxiety, and sleep and appetite disturbance for anywhere from a few days to a few weeks after an event. Some will have additional reactions such as fear, sadness, guilt or anger. But these things typically settle down for most people. 
PTSD is diagnosed when a person experiences persistent psychological distress beyond what might be considered a normal response, that's severe enough to interfere with their psychosocial functioning, and that's present for more than a month. Its onset may be immediate in the period after the traumatic event, or it may be delayed with symptoms not really emerging or being recognised until months or even years later. The DSM-5 classification system divides the symptoms experienced into four broad clusters. Re-experiencing, avoidance, negative alterations in cognitions and mood, or in simple terms, thoughts and feelings, and arousal. The re-experiencing cluster of symptoms includes intrusive and unwanted thoughts and images of the event, often called flashbacks, and distressing dreams or nightmares. Avoidance refers to the thoughts and feelings associated with the event or the avoidance of external reminders such as people, places or activities that trigger distressing memories. Negative alterations in cognitions and mood include negative thoughts about oneself or the world, including feelings of being unsafe, distorted blame of self or others, persisting emotions of fear, horror, anger or guilt, or emotional detachment and numbing. And in the arousal cluster, there's hypervigilance, exaggerated startle response, sleep disturbance, problems with concentration, and behaviour that's irritable and aggressive, or self-destructive and reckless. In some cases of PTSD, the additional descriptor of dissociative subtype might be attached, where there are recurrent feelings of depersonalisation, being detached from oneself, or derealisation, being detached from one's surroundings and reality. I know there's a lot to digest there, but I think you can see that in both OCD and PTSD, there's the flavour of an overactive fear response, excessive arousal, and associated avoidance behaviours that are shared by the anxiety disorders we discussed earlier. Okay, it's time to finish up there. This has probably been the most information-dense episode I've done yet. My goal with this podcast is to try and simplify important ideas to make them a little easier to grasp, and I'm not sure how well I've done in this episode. I'd suggest that you may want to re-listen to the episode a few times, or re-listen just to certain parts, to help you take it all in. If after that things still don't make much sense for you, then it's me that's failed, and I apologise for that and taking up your valuable time. In the next episode, I'm going to give an overview of the main treatment modalities for anxiety and anxiety disorders. I'd like to invite you back again with me for the next episode of Addiction in Simple Terms.